0: Good morning. Well, the, uh, the water heater in the baptistry was not functioning this morning, so I'm wide awake. <laughs> uh, in the first two messages of this series, uh, we've been talking about the Abrahamic covenant. And that covenant which God gave to Isaac, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as we said, was a unilateral covenant. Uh, God promised the land, the seed, and the blessing to Abraham and to his seed, and, he, and God swore by himself to fulfill those promises. We saw over and over in the last couple of weeks that God worked in the lives of his people to move his covenant forward. Uh, even when his people, even when the patriarchs, struggled to trust in his promises, God remained faithful. And he continued to move everything toward the fulfillment of his plan of redemption and of his promises. We saw finally that in Jesus Christ, those promises are fulfilled and in him alone. Finally, we saw that it is only when we come to share the faith of Abraham that we participate in those promises. Uh, and, and we come to be heirs with Abraham of all that God has given to his children. Today and next week, we'll be considering the second of the four great Old Testament covenants, the Mosaic Covenant. This is the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai and that he delivered to his people through Moses. The Mosaic Covenant consists of the Ten Commandments, which were just read, along with all of the detailed commandments, statutes, and ordinances contained in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All of these make up God's instructions to Israel regarding how they were required to live as sons of the covenant. The Mosaic covenant also includes blessings and curses that God revealed to his people. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience either of which he would pour out upon his people depending on how they responded and whether they were loyal or disloyal to that which he required. Now, it wouldn't fit the purpose of this covenant survey for me to dive into the the details of the many commands and provisions of the Mosaic Covenant. So I'm not going to attempt to do that. Instead, for these two weeks, we're going to take a look at this marvelous covenant from a 30,000 foot view. And uh, we're going to do that with, an, with a focus on seeing how it fits into God's plan of redemption and how it fits together with the other three Old Testament covenants. Uh, here's where we're going today. First, we're going to see that the Mosaic Covenant is a two-way street. This is a bilateral rather than a unilateral covenant. And we'll talk about what that means. Secondly, we're going to examine the connection between the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant that we looked at the last couple of weeks. Then we're going to talk about the purpose of God's law, a purpose that's often missed. And we'll talk about how God's law actually works, about the difference between law-keeping and rule-keeping. And then we'll, we'll look at the heart of God's law, the great commandment. All right, that's where we're going. We're going to start by discussing the bilateral nature of this covenant. As we touched on in the first message of this series, a bilateral covenant is a two-sided agreement. It is by definition essentially conditional. God makes covenant with his people and he makes certain promises and those promises will be fulfilled toward his people if they behave a certain way. If they love him, and submit to his terms for blessing, then they will be blessed. If not, they'll experience curses from his hand instead of blessing. Now, without getting into any extended discussion about the history of covenants in the ancient Near East, I'll say that Israel was already very familiar with this type of covenant. Based on their experience seeing how the kings of Egypt dealt with their subjects, and how the kings of the surrounding nations dealt with their subjects, Most of what anyone in the ancient Near East saw by way of covenants were bilateral covenants. Covenants with very strong conditions attached. We said in conjunction with the Abrahamic covenant that the marker to look for in a passage about a unilateral covenant is the phrase, I will. You'll see that phrase repeated, and we saw in Genesis 12 that it was repeated over and over. In a bilateral covenant, the language is a little bit different. There's an if clause. The language is consistently presented this way. If you will honor the covenant, then I, God, will bless you. And by the same token, the negative side, if you will not honor the covenant, then I will curse you. When we look at some of the passages in which the blessings and curses are laid out, we see this pattern with great clarity. Deuteronomy chapter 28 uh, lays out the blessings and curses of the Mosaic Covenant, and it it, uh, expands on what came earlier in Leviticus 26. And in the blessings section, verses 1 through 14, we see God say, If you will diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments which I command you, then the Lord your God will and then it goes through various types of blessing and specific kinds of blessing that God will bestow on his people. We see this, if you will, then God will pattern, continued uh, throughout the 14 verses in which the blessings are enumerated. Then, in verses 15 to 29 of the same chapter, Moses switches over to the curses, speaking on God's behalf, and he explains to Israel, What will happen if they do not keep covenant? And once again, he says, if you will not obey the covenant, here's what's going to happen. And instead of blessings, we see curses. And by the way, this section of the book, this curses section, what I call the curses verses, is extended all the way through chapter 29 and into chapter 30. There are 52 verses on the curses and 14 on the blessings. Um... That's because, as I said last week, God knew which of those two Israel would spend most of their time in. Okay? Uh, So this this identifying language is is readily apparent in all of these passages. Alright, that's the language. Let's talk about the connection between the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. Leviticus 26 contains the abbreviated version of the blessings and curses that we were just looking at in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. We looked last week at this same passage, Leviticus 26, 40 through 45, and we saw that after Israel had experienced the full weight of the curses because of their failure to obey the law of Moses, they will turn back to God, and He will remember His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God vows in advance... That he will not reject nor abhor Israel so as to destroy them. He will punish them. They will experience his curses, but he absolutely says he will not destroy them. And by the way, there are many verses throughout the prophets in which he makes that same declaration. Why would he not destroy them? Because to do so would violate his covenant with Abraham that he swore by himself to keep. It's a unilateral covenant. Uh, in the end of that, let's see, okay, this, the second set of verses here in verses 43, uh, to the, to 45, this is where you see where, that God promises He will not reject or abhor His people. Even though they, in the verse before, they rejected His ordinance, His ordinances and their soul abhorred His statutes. That word play is a contrast between what God's people do and what God does. Now, there's a very important interplay here and in many other passages between these two foundational covenants. As we've already seen, the Abrahamic blessing included three key promises. Anybody remember what those three promises are? Land, seed, and blessing. Somebody was listening over there. That's good. I'm not being condescending. Y'all are listening, except the ones that were asleep, but that's right. That's my fault, not yours. Land, city, and blessing. We saw that these promises were unilateral. They will be fulfilled regardless of what God's people do. Because these are unconditional promises. But, try to follow me here. Participation by any given generation of Israelites in these three promises is conditional upon their willingness to keep the Mosaic Covenant. This is the connection between the two covenants. Participation in the blessings that that God has bundled together with being in the land, blessings of fertility, abundance of provision, divine protection from enemies, many other blessings. Participation in those blessings for any generation of Israel is conditioned on their willingness to obey the covenant that God made at Mount Sinai, the Mosaic Covenant. So the experience of these blessings by each generation is contingent on their humility before God to love Him and to obey His instruction. If they did obey Him, they could remain in the land and experience amazing blessing from God's mighty hand. But if they disobey, they'll experience the curses that God enumerates. And if they persist in that disobedience, he'll expel them. He will remove them from the land by the hand of their enemies, the same ones he vowed to protect them from if they obey. All right, I'm going to repeat myself at the risk of, of uh, being too repetition, repetitious because this connection is very important for understanding these two covenants. The Abrahamic covenant is unilateral and its promises are unconditional in that they will all be perfectly fulfilled by God but the participation by any given generation of Israelites in the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant was conditional. It was dependent upon their faithfulness to obey the commandments of the Mosaic covenant. Is that fairly clear? Okay. This did not make the Abrahamic covenant conditional because as we saw last week, all of the promises God made to Abraham will be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. By the way, next week we're going to see that there's a dramatic twist when it comes to the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant. So uh, stay tuned. Now, the purpose of the law, uh, and I'm sorry I didn't put that up, the purpose of God's law, the Torah, is something that was lost for the most part on God's people. They did not get this. And we still struggle with it. One of the things that I love to see people discover is the true meaning and purpose of God's law. The Hebrew word that's translated law as in the law of Moses is the word Torah. And it, it doesn't mean law as in a set of rules. It means instruction. The word Torah means instruction or teaching. Now, the New Testament consistently uses the term law in reference to the Torah. And law is the term that we'll use throughout most of this study, but it's critical for us to understand what kind of law we're talking about. It is not fundamentally a set of rules. It is not law for law's sake. Law as an end in itself. The obligation of God's people to the Torah is to be law keepers, not rule keepers. Now bear with me and I'll try to explain what I mean by that. It is vitally important that we understand the true purpose of God's law because rules, even perfect ones, are incapable of making people holy. Indeed, as we're going to see in some detail next week, the Bible tells us that when we approach the law of God as a system of rules, as if rule-keeping can make us holy, it actually accomplishes the exact opposite. It makes us more unholy. That's because our sin nature responds to rules, even the good ones, in an entirely irrational way. If it were true that law in and of itself could affect change in the hearts of men, then here's how it would work. If I had correct information about which specific behaviors were required by the law, as well as clear information about the consequences of observing those behaviors or not observing those behaviors, then that clear knowledge would be enough to affect the change in me that the lawgiver purposes to effect. But that is not how... Law works. And it never was. Clear information, clearly defined rules, clearly defined consequences will not impart to us the holiness that God's character requires. Now keep that thought on the front burner because we're going to go into it in, uh, quite a lot today and a lot more next Sunday. We'll see that God's word is very forceful regarding the fact that rule keeping cannot make anyone righteous. And we'll also see that the incurable tendency of our sinful flesh is to take even God's perfect law and to reduce it to rules. But there is a positive purpose for God's law, for us who are the redeemed of God. If we understand it correctly, and my my, my hope for this morning is that we will, then we can we we find that we can delight in the law of God. Uh, If we understand what the Torah is and its power in the hands of the Holy Spirit to teach us transforming truths about God that we very much need to know, then we, like David, will delight in the law. All right. If the law that Moses received from God did not purpose to make people righteous, and we'll demonstrate that In the next two weeks. What was its purpose? Well, I believe there are three essential purposes to the law of Moses. But the second and third proceed from the first. So they're really three in one. And the first one is the key. It's the one up here now. The purpose of God's law, the fundamental purpose, is to show us the character of God. And how his character works itself out in our dealings with him and with one another. The second purpose, which flows from the first, is to show us our character in light of His. And because that ends up being very bad news, the third purpose is to show us that God is the one who must bridge the infinite gap between His character and ours. All three of these things are made clear in the law. We're going to consider the first of those three today, And we'll focus on the second and third next Sunday, Lord willing. The first and overriding purpose of the law of Moses is to show us God's character, who he is and what he is like. In order to clearly see this, we have to understand how God's law works, how it accomplishes that purpose. God's law is a rule of life, not a set of rules. God's law was never intended by him to be a comprehensive set of rules to cover every situation in life because that is not workable. In fact, it's not even possible. His law is intended to be a rule of life, a way of life that is in keeping with who he is. The second thing I want to point out is that God's law is principle by example. It's the spirit of the law that counts, not the letter. The Mosaic Law gives us specific examples of what it looks like when we work out God's character, as I said, in our dealings with him and with others. And then it expects that through those those vignettes, those examples, we will gain wisdom to know how to behave in situations that aren't specifically addressed in the law. In other words, the law is intended to impart wisdom more than Knowledge. One of the best ways to clearly see this is to look at a couple of specific examples. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 8, God tells his people, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring blood guilt on your house if anyone falls from it. Now, a parapet is a railing that goes around the perimeter of a flat roof. And the principle inherent in this command, the spirit of the law, is pretty clear. I am my brother's keeper. As a covenant child of God, I am responsible to protect my neighbor's life and well-being by taking reasonable precautions not to put him at risk. Why? Because God is a compassionate God. He is a gracious and loving God who cares about the well-being of his people. And we're called to reflect his character, to act as his agents in all that we do toward one another. So here's the question. Does this rule about roofs and railings cover all situations in which I'm responsible to protect the life and well-being of my neighbor? Of course not. Does it address every contingency in which my action or lack of action could put my neighbor at risk? Of course not. It's not even conceivable that one could create a system of rules that would cover every such contingency. And this is just one principle of godly living that proceeds from God's character, that we are responsible to watch over the well-being of our brother. Here's a second, Exodus 22, 26 to 27. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, as a, as a guarantee that he will pay you back a debt, You are to return it to him before the sun sets. For that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. Again, the principle behind the commandment, the spirit of the law, is pretty apparent, right? If my neighbor has a debt to me, I am to be merciful and kind in my efforts to collect on that debt. I'm to be more concerned about my neighbor's well-being than I am about getting what's owed to me. And the reason, the rationale that God gives for that command is that he is a gracious God. The law of God presented in the form of examples that are supposed to communicate principles is a rule of life. And every one of the principles flows from who God is. If God's concern then is for the principle, the spirit of the law, what happens when God's people treat the law as an end in itself? As if diligently observing the detailed commandments contained in the law will make them holy. David, would you come up here for one sec? Grab that and walk down that aisle with it. Okay, stop. All right, this, you can just drop it. This is the 613 mitzvot, the commandments, that one rabbi, Maimonides, from the medieval period, called out from the Torah. He wrote these all out, and these are the specifics of what Israel was to obey in various categories and situations. None of these is repeated. This is one, one linear list of commandments. But you know what? This is just the beginning The Jews wrote volume upon volume upon volume. The rabbis, especially during the intertestamental period, took these 613 laws and they clarified every one of them and they wrote explanations of how each one applied in various situations. And it got pretty crazy at times. For example, if your house was burning down on the Sabbath you could not carry your clothes out of the house to save them because that would constitute work, and you're not to work on the Sabbath. But you could wear as many layers of your clothing as you could manage to put on. And then you could run out of the house to another house and take them all off. And some rabbis, not all, allowed you to go back a second time and get a bunch more clothes on and go to another house. That didn't qualify as work because you were wearing the clothes and thus was not a violation of the Sabbath. You also, as a Jew, couldn't try to put out the fire that was consuming your own house, because that would be work, and it's the Sabbath, so you can't work. But if there was a Gentile who happened to be in your neighborhood, and who offered to try to put out the fire, you could let him. You couldn't ask him to put out the fire, because then you'd be complicit in asking a Gentile to do what the law forbade. But if he offered, you could let him. All this is document, guys. This is public domain. This kind of pointless legalism is inevitably what happens when we pursue rule-keeping as if it can make us righteous. We run out of rules to cover the situations we encounter, so we make more rules, and then we inevitably impose them on other people. But not so much on ourselves. God's concern never was with the letter of the law. It was with the spirit of the law. With that which the law shows us of his character. When his people replace the spirit with the letter, the principle is what gets lost. Every time. The foundational principle of God's law Is for us to be holy as he is holy. Leviticus 19 verses 1 and 2. God said, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. God said, that he's not impressed with external rule keeping. In Psalm 51, David cried out after he was caught in the sins of murder and adultery. He cried out to God and he said, "Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, Thou God of my salvation." Then my tongue will joyfully sing of Thy righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips that I, that my mouth may declare Thy praise. For thou dost delight in sac- does not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. God doesn't care if a man brings sacrifices if his heart is not right. Last week we saw that the sign of the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision. But Deuteronomy ten sixteen and Colossians two eleven tell us that God doesn't care if a man is physically circumcised if that man's heart is not circumcised. God's law is not some kind of tick list that we can check off to confirm that we're okay with him. It is principle by example to show us who our God is and what his character requires. When we get that wrong, we distort and corrupt the law of God, which itself is holy and righteous and good. And we turn it into something that's useless and can't change anyone. And you know what? We all do this. The law is about God's holiness over and over and over throughout the Pentateuch as God is laying out the specifics of his instruction to Israel. He says that the reason for a particular commandment is because he is who he is. It's about his character. Many times, God finishes out a particular command with the words, For I am Yahweh, your God. Leviticus 19, this picks up right after his declaration in 19.2 You are to be holy, for I am holy. And look at how many times in this passage, and there are, let's see, one, two, three screens of it, look at how many times a command ends with the statement, I am Yahweh, your God. Why are God's people to be kind and merciful to aliens and strangers and orphans and widows? Because God is. Why are God's people not to oppress or to to be unjust? Because God is a just God. Everything that God requires of us is based on who He is. Fifteen times in this one chapter, God says, I require you to live this way because this is how I am. And many, many other passages. I mean, this is... Just look around in the Old Testament. You're going to see this over and over. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you work through the commandments and the law of Moses, you'll see the pattern. You shall be X, blank, fill in the blank, because I am. You shall do this because this is what I do. Deuteronomy 10, verses 16 to 19, God says, Circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no more for Yahweh your God is the God of gods the Lord of lords the great the mighty and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe he executes justice for the orphan and widow he shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing so show your love for the alien for you were aliens once in the land of Egypt Deuteronomy 16:19 you shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. And he just said in chapter 10 that God himself does not show partiality nor take a bribe. You'll see this again over and over and over. I hope that, that these passages the sampling of passages establishes the point that God's law is a reflection of his character. There's one more thing we must not miss if we're to understand this great covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, as God intended it. And that is that the heart of God's law is love. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. A man billed as an expert on the law of Moses came to Jesus and tried to use that law to trip him up. That was a task destined to fail. He asked him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus answered him and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now these were not new commandments when Jesus spoke them. Both of these come straight out of the law of Moses. The first is from the great passage known as the Shema. The passage that many Jews consider the most foundational in all of the Old Testament. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear, also translated obey. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Leviticus 19 verse 18, that's the same passage we were looking at a little while ago. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? I am Yahweh. The Apostle Paul said this about loving one's neighbor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. The law of God is a law of love. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you don't need rules the principles in all of the other commandments in the mosaic covenant will be fulfilled by love the spirit of the law will be fulfilled the ten commandments of course fit perfectly into this understanding of god's law and somehow that slide is gone hang on give me one second There we go. No. Don't you love this? Okay. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Many of you have seen this breakout before. The first four commandments are about loving God. The other six are about loving men, people, as yourself. All right, if we love the Lord and if we love our neighbor, we fundamentally don't need commandments because we will fulfill the spirit of God's law from our hearts. Next week, we're going to see how God has worked to fulfill in us the requirement of his law. And in a few weeks, when we get to the New Covenant, at the end of this series, we'll see how God transforms our hearts to bring about this love. The love that makes rules unnecessary. Now, why should we still study the law of Moses? In Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, David says this about the law. The law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. All of these things are still true of God's law. One of the greatest blessings of my life has been coming by the work of God through the Spirit and through the Word to delight in the law of the Lord. I know many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. When I was a young Christian and I tried to read through the Bible, the first several times I ended up skipping huge sections of the law in the first five books. It struck me as a bunch of rules that had little bearing on real life. And in fact, there were a lot of a lot of the commandments that I saw that I didn't even understand. I didn't even know what they were requiring. But quite a number of years ago, the spirit through the word and through the straightforward declarations of the law brought me to a point where I really got what David meant when he said he delights in the law of the Lord. I'm not talking about knowledge that's hard to find. God's character, who he is, is all over the Torah. It's all over both testaments. We just have to take the time to abide in his word long enough to see it. Diligent study of God's law and of all that he has to say in his word always yields a great harvest of blessings to those who are willing to do it. If you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then a lot of this talk about law-keeping versus rule-keeping doesn't make much sense to you. If you're like I was before I was saved, I thought that righteousness was about doing the right things. It does not work that way. Next week we'll see without question that our efforts to keep any set of rules will be an abject failure. We cannot make ourselves good enough for God. His law requires that we are like him. And there's only one way that that happens. That's if he clothes us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the way that happens is when we put our faith in his son and in his son alone. Then he writes his law upon our hearts and we learn how to delight in every word that he has spoken loving father thank you for the uh, the power of every page that you have written to us thank you father for the amazing reality that loving you and responding to your love for us by loving others is the perfect fulfillment of your law Teach us what that means, Lord. I pray that none of us would walk away from here this morning seeing seeing the requirement of your character as some kind of impossible burden, but that we would know that you are the one who has done in us what you require by the work of Jesus and by his work alone. We ask these things in his precious name and for his sake. Amen.